As always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or you're visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our elders here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, that's when we spend our time today looking at the Word of God together. And obviously, you guys know that we're in the middle of celebrating uh, Advent together as a church because every single Christmas, Christians from around the world, we slow down and we try to consider and get our brains around the enormity that God became human to know our plight to, and to undo all that we broke. And as you've heard the last couple of weeks, Advent is not only a consideration and looking back to the first coming of Jesus, but it's a looking forward. It's looking forward to his second coming and anticipating his future return. And that day when the kingdom of God burst onto the scene and burst into history and into reality and all of its fullness and all of its glory. Advent is we look back to what God has done through Jesus and we look forward to what God will do through Jesus. And so to get us ready for that, to help us center our minds in this season, we've been camping out in a passage in 1 Peter 4, a book we've been in for some time together. And we've been camping out here because this section, Peter is using the future return of Jesus as the motivation for how we should live today. So let's go ahead and read 1 Peter 4, 7 through 9 to see where we've been the last couple of weeks and see where we're gonna be today. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 through 9. This is the word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So Peter says the fact that Jesus could return at any moment should cause us to live in certain ways, to be self-controlled and sober-minded and loving one another above all. And today we're going to see the next command for us to practice, for us as a church to practice in light of the end. And it's, a, it's one that you probably wouldn't think about. It's hospitality. So 4-7 says this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So since Jesus is coming back, we are to open up our homes with joy and eagerness. So that means as we don't just practice hospitality around the holidays for our family members, it means the holidays should showcase what you already do throughout the year and how you open up your home throughout the year to other Christians and to your neighbors and your friends. Now, this command is actually quite simple as a concept having people and hosting people in your home. It's pretty simple to understand. But there's so much more significance and depth to this than maybe we might expect. And even though it's a simple thing to understand, it's a much more difficult thing to do. In our culture right now, it is increasingly rare, increasingly rare to have people in your home who are not related to you. It's increasingly rare to have people in your home who aren't related to you. The, the stats show the stats show this clearly, that generally, you and I have less friendships and less close ties to people that we are not related to than the previous generations before us. Now, you can explain that with a lot of, all sorts of things, but that's the reality. And because we, have, we, have, we don't have as close of ties to other people who aren't our family, that means we have people in our home who we're not related to less. Because a marker of close friendship is that you would be in their home and they, you would be in theirs. And many of you, many of you have experienced this kind of shrinking friendship network firsthand if you've tried to have people over to your home. If you have a neighbor over or a coworker over or someone over who's not your family member, 
And you begin to talk to them, and if you ask them questions, you will learn how rare it is for us as a society to have people share a meal with us. See, close proximity, being in the same apartment complex, being in the same neighborhood does not equate actual relationship. One of our elders just had a firsthand experience with this. One of our elders, he wanted to uh, host um, just a brunch at his house. And so he wanted to build some community, get to know his neighbors, and so he handed out flyers, he knocked on doors, he brought his young kids and helped them feel guilty, like you wanted to let down my son kind of thing. And, and they went around the neighborhood and they went and bought donuts and tacos and coffee and they invited everybody and they thought honestly a handful of people would show up. And then 40 people showed up. And it was this incredible conversation and what they began to see, what all of us see if you do this sort of thing is they begin to have conversations, and it's the same kind of thing. I've lived here X number of years, and I've never met anybody. Or I've lived here X number of years, and I've seen so-and-so before, but we've never had a conversation. I've never been in their home, they've never been in mine. There was an older gentleman who told him, I've lived here 15 years, and I've always wanted to do something like this, but no one's ever done it. And I find that it's fascinating that in our society, even sincere desire, even sincere, genuine desire to show hospitality that you can have is still difficult for us to act on. It's still difficult for us to act on. I'm sure you can resonate with that man's statement. I know that I can. All of us have have had a genuine desire to practice hospitality, to get to know someone better. You've even said, hey, I want to get lunch with you. We should hang out sometime. You've said that, and sometimes you say it because you're being nice, you want to get away from them. I understand that. But other times you're saying it, and it's sincere. You do want to get to know them. You do want to hang out with them. You do want to practice hospitality towards them, and yet it's so difficult to do. We so easily settle for surface relationships. We so easily settle for a distant wave, head nod, get in the house kind of thing. We all do it. Even a sincere desire for it, in our culture of individualism, it is difficult to do. For you to consistently have people in your home who are not your family members is swimming upstream in our culture. You have to know that. But at the heart of our struggle to practice hospitality, it is not our culture. It is our own idolatry. It's not our culture. At the heart of it, it's our own idolatry. See, our homes just like everything else in your life that's good, is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And it's a gift that honestly, many in the world don't possess. And just like every gift that God gives, homes are meant to be a blessing to you that you share to bless other people. See, a gift, a gift turns into an idol. An idol is a false God we worship. A gift turns into an idol when you don't use it according to God's word and you run to it for things only God can give. A gift, a good gift from God turns into an idol, something you idolize when you don't use it according to God's word and you run to it for things only God can give. So our homes, our homes are meant to be a place of refuge and solace and retreat. They're meant to be shelters for weary bodies and souls and minds, but they're not meant to just be a shelter for you and those who look like you. Not just for you and those who look like you. It's meant to be shared. 
It's a gift meant to be shared with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, with neighbors you're getting to know, with those who are in need. And too often, our homes become shrines to self. Too often, our homes become shrines to self. Too often, we genuinely believe our homes exist for us and not for God. So we may say with our mouths, oh, true peace that surpasses understanding comes from God, but we act and we live like, no, the true peace I need is found from my home. That's how we live. But you have to know even the quietest, nicest, most spacious home you could imagine, your dream home, can still be plagued by weariness and anxiety and fear. There's plenty of people with phenomenal homes and no people in them, and they still are plagued by anxiety, plagued by fear. Why? There is a rest and a refuge your house can't give. There's a rest and a refuge only God can give to you. Now, sometimes God uses your home as a means to that rest. Don't hear me say, everyone now, go, home, go to your house, sell it on Craigslist. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying your home can be used by God to give you rest. But I'm also saying other times it won't, it won't accomplish what you're after because God is teaching you, no, there are places in your heart that your home can't go. His word and his promises are our true shelter. And our homes are a gift to be shared, not a, not a God to be worshipped. But we turn it into our own idolatry. Because hospitality has always been a command that God had in practice that God has given to his people. From the first command in the Garden of Eden to Israel and now even more prominently to the church, hospitality is a common theme. So the very first command in the Garden of Eden, do you know what the heart of it is? Adam and Eve make the world hospitable. Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over, and it goes on to list everything. He's saying, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Why? To make it hospitable for the image bearers that will fill it. Hospitality is what it means to be human. Then speaking to Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness, God says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Israel is moving towards the promised land, and he says, Israel, be good host to those who sojourn among you. Love them like they're your own native family. Why? Why should we do that? Because you were strangers in Egypt, and I hosted and brought you in. In the garden, in the wilderness, and now hospitality is even more prominent and more explicit in the New Testament. Every single Christian is commanded to show hospitality. One thing that blew my mind this week as, as I was studying is that for some reason, and I don't know where I got this in my mind, but for some reason, I thought hospitality was a spiritual gift. Like, I've heard people say that. I've said that. And... and I went and looked back and I looked at, at all the lists the, the, the apostles give about spiritual gifts, those gifts the Holy Spirit has given individuals with, within the church to especially bless and empower for the building up of the church. And in every list, hospitality is not on there. There is no spiritual gift of hospitality, and I thought, that sounds just like us. 
We wanna make something that we're all supposed to do, something that's only for specialized people. That we want specialized people who are really good at hosting instead of having it be a common practice and expectation for all of us, regardless of your personality, regardless of your gifting. This is Paul's command to all Christians in Romans 12, 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's not even show hospitality, it's seek it out. Seek to show hospitality. Did you know that even in the character requirement of those who lead at the highest levels in the church, explicitly for elders, they must be hospitable men. 1 Timothy 3.2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Hospitable. We are to be a people from the top down, known for having one another and this city in our homes. We're called to be known by that, whether your home is large or small, whether you're proud of your home or not, whether you're introverted or extroverted, hospitality must be a priority. See, now by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to transform our homes from our fortress of solitude and a temple to our own image into a means of loving and serving all of those who bear the image of God. That's what we're called to do. And especially, and especially, when it says one another in this text, especially those who share your faith in Christ, those who bear the image of Jesus with you. Now, when you see in the New Testament, hospitality is such a common and prominent theme, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. But I really believe one of the most prominent reasons for why hospitality is so important in the New Testament is because of how prominent, how prominent shared homes and shared meals were in the ministry of Jesus. Hospitality, hear me really clearly, hospitality is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the gospel. When you read through, when you read through the historical accounts, the historical accounts of Jesus' life called the gospels, what you're going to see is Jesus is so often eating meals with people in their homes. It's happening all the time. And this wasn't just happenstance, this wasn't just um, circumstantial, but Jesus was communicating something to the world through these meals. Here's what he's showing us. He's showing us that one of the most tangible ways to communicate the love and the kingdom of God is by having them in your home and sharing a meal together. It's one of the most tangible, powerful ways you can show the kingdom of God. Uh, There was a book I read a couple of years ago that was so impactful for me when it comes to this topic. The book's called A Meal with Jesus, and it's by a guy named Tim Chester, who's from the UK. And, And one of the main premises of the book is the importance and the centrality of hospitality and the ministry of Jesus. And I'm gonna read to you kind of the main premise this book is based upon. He says this, how would you complete the sentence? The son of man came, dot, dot, dot. The son of man came preaching the word to establish the kingdom of God, to die on the cross. Perhaps the question is more revealing if we make it, we should go dot, dot, dot. We should go campaign for political change, preach on street corners, make the most of new media, adapt to the culture we want to reach. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the son of man came dot, dot, dot. The son of man came not to 
be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, Luke 7, 34. The first, the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. The third is a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. It's fascinating. Of all the different ways Jesus could have interacted with and taught people, one of the main ways was through hospitality. And the reason for this, you're thinking, well, why that method? The reason for this is because he wasn't, God wasn't descending Jesus to teach the world knowledge about him. He was reconciling the world back to himself. He wasn't coming here just to tell us, to give us new information on how to live our best lives. He was coming to bring us back into a relationship of love and intimacy and acceptance with God. See, during the time of the New Testament, and honestly still to this day in some way, having a meal with somebody communicated acceptance of that person. Having a meal, especially in the New Testament times, having a meal with someone communicated acceptance of them. A meal wasn't just eating food together. A meal was communicating, this is someone that I love, someone I have a relationship with, someone I affirm. Even if you disagreed with them, even if the person you're having a meal with is wrong for the way they're living, a meal says, I'm committed to them. A meal says, I love them through all thick and thin. That's what a meal communicated. And you can see this really clearly in the New Testament in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. What this means is that, because we don't really understand what that, how repugnant these, these people were in the eyes of the Jews, a tax collector had sold out his fellow Jews, sold them out to side with the Roman oppressors. And these collectors were notorious for overtaxing people taxing them more than they should for their own benefit and their own financial gain. And so they were absolutely despised by the Jews. And so one day Jesus is walking to Jericho and Zacchaeus hears Jesus is there and he wants to meet, he wants to see this man he'd heard so much about. But as you can imagine, there's tons of crowds around Jesus. And the text tells us that Zacchaeus is a short guy. You saw in the song, he's a wee little man, right? He's, he's somebody, he, doesn't, he can't see over the crowds. So he thinks, okay, I'm gonna run up ahead, I'm gonna get in a tree, and I'm gonna have a better vantage point. This is what happens. It says in verse five, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Jesus sees Zacchaeus, and he invites himself over. He's like your uncle. I'm staying with you tonight. Like, like that's, he invites himself over. Now by itself, this can feel like just an innocuous, unimportant detail of the story. Jesus needed a place to stay. He's getting tired. Sees a rich dude in a tree. I'm staying at your place. Like that's what all it seems. And you may think I'm reading too much into this, but by saying, Zacchaeus, I want to stay at your house, he is communicating something powerful about his love for Zacchaeus and all those who are far from God. He's saying something powerful because he's not just going to his house to teach him some stuff. He's going to his house to save him. 
He's going to his house to give him a place at the table in the kingdom of God. And the reason I know I'm not reading too much into this is because when the crowds see Jesus say that, they hear Jesus say that, and they see him go to Zacchaeus' home, they are filled with anger. They are filled with anger that he would love a sinner like Zacchaeus the way that he did. Because the next verse, the very next verse, verse 7, and when they, the crowds, saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They grumbled because he was going to share a home and meals with someone they despised. And what is fascinating is actually this is the common frustration of the religious leaders with Jesus. Their common frustration is how he treated those who were far from God. Their issue wasn't that he taught them. His, their issue was not that Jesus taught the crowds. They were teachers of the law. Surely they could understand teaching people. Now, do you know what their issue was with Jesus? That he ate with them. That he ate with them. I'll show you two examples of that. Luke 15, one through two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Mark 2, 15 through 16. And as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw it, saw what? That he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with them? Listen, not why does he teach them, not why does he lead them, why does he eat with them? Why does he share such sacred space with them? Why is he so kind? Why is he so warm? Why does he get on their level and listen and get to know them? Because Jesus wasn't teaching and challenging the crowds from a distance. He was getting up close. He was having conversations. He was learning their stories. And he was communicating the love of God. And here's the thing. He was accepting them right where they were. He wasn't up on a hill, come to me. He was down having meals. And religious leaders could not understand it because they wanted to bring moral lessons to people. Jesus wanted to bring the love of God to restore a relationship with people. And what I found in my life, almost all relationships that are, when they are restored, it normally happens in homes and over meals. That's how you restore a relationship not from a distance, but in a home and over meals. That's why hospitality is a distinct command from the general command of generosity. When I first began writing this sermon this week, honestly, my thought was, I'm gonna teach this kind of similar to generosity. I was gonna teach this similar and say, okay, in the same way you should be generous with your money and possessions, you should be generous with your home and your time. But hospitality is a form of generosity but it's unique from every other expression of generosity. Because listen, you can give away money, you can give away time, you can give away talents in ways that genuinely bless and serve 
and help other people, but you never have to have a relationship with them. You can be generous and yet never have a relationship of love with them. Hospitality is unique because you are being generous with your possessions, listen, but you're also inviting them into a conversation. You're also inviting them into interaction. You're also inviting them into a relationship. That's why sometimes it's easier to open your wallet instead of your home because it doesn't force you to have a relationship and conversation with someone you don't know and don't have history with. So many of us want to serve at a distance but never actually love another human. And hospitality forces those things to happen. Hospitality is one of the primary, most tangible ways we express love for each other because it's about a relationship, not a transaction. So it's serving another person and it's getting to know them. It's providing a room, it's providing a meal, and it's providing an attentive heart and an attentive ear to them. It's cleaning up your house, and it's creating a warm environment, and it's sharing your story. And hospitality creates a mess. Food falls on the rug, dishes are dirtied and broken, nights go long, and hurting people and broken relationships begin to heal. Hospitality is having people over in order to love them, in order to accept them, in order to meet them where they are, in order for the grace of God to begin to transform you and me. When I think about all the most life-giving and transformative relationships I've ever had in my life, they have always included hospitality. Same for you. Every relationship that has genuinely changed you, it may not have always happened at someone's home or at your home, but hospitality was a part of it. When I first came to the Stone, I was part of this group, I was 22, I was part of this group that met at our leader's house every single week, and their hospitality was really thoughtful, but it was not fancy. We ate a lot of casseroles and Papa Murphy's pizza, and we put on some LBs that, that year because those things are dense, all right? Um, we really got weighed down to the earth that, that year. Um, and I remember every time we were over there together, listen, every time we were over there together, it wasn't always powerful. Don't romanticize hospitality. It wasn't always powerful. Sometimes it was just another night of hanging out and talking and learning and praying together. But there were also nights that began to change me and Lauren. There were also nights that changed us. Nights where God used someone's encouragement or someone's story to genuinely help me believe God forgave me. I'd heard sermons before, but something about what that person said, and, and we'd been together for so many weeks in a row, it, it ministered to me in, in such a unique way. There were nights where the laughter was sweeter together because our relationships were deeper than just silliness and hanging out. I can still remember the, very, the first time I'd ever had this experience where we wept and prayed over a couple who just had a miscarriage. 
we wept and prayed over another couple whose marriage and other marriages were falling apart. We prayed and we were honest about doubts we had about God. You cannot, you cannot have that sort of weeping and that sort of honesty and that sort of love and that sort of acceptance and that sort of joy apart from a shared home and a shared table. You can't have it. You're not going to weep at a restaurant. You're not going to say all that is going on inside of you if you haven't practiced hospitality together. Our church, this thing called the Austin Stone, our church will only be as kind and as warm and as diverse and as honest and as gracious as your dinner table. Our church corporately will not outpace your hospitality. It won't. Your hospitality, my hospitality, or lack thereof will determine the kind of church we're gonna be. Because there's something about it that communicates love. Jesus practiced it. It communicates love in a way that you just can't in an anonymous conversation. That's why Peter says, show hospitality without grumbling. First Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why does he add without grumbling? Because when you host people, you go in the other room, room and you complain about them typically, right? Because, listen, you can do the right actions. You can have them in your home, but if you do it with a discontent and entitled heart, you're missing the point of hospitality. It's about loving those people. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. Are you practicing this? Do you do this? Do you do it with any sort of consistency? It's probably a better question. Who are people in our church that you want to get to know? Who are people that you have conflict with? Who are people you see and they look differently than you or voted differently than you? However you answer those questions, invite them over. Invite them over. If your place is too small, let's say you live in a dorm, invite them to dinner or be like Jesus and invite yourself over to their place, right? <laughs> I'm staying with you tonight, right? You're not Jesus, it may not work out as well for you if you do that. Um, we can't do this once in a while, we have to seek to show hospitality. And listen, I don't know that this means every day, but I do know the early church, we're told how often they were in each other's homes. I think a good rule of thumb, if it's been a month, you're probably off. It's probably too long. You're probably not practicing hospitality. But the only way you're gonna keep doing this, the only way you're gonna push past the night where you're, you're hospitable and it doesn't go well and you're hospitable and your things are broken and you're hospitable and it's not a powerful night, the only way you're gonna push past all those things and do it without grumbling but with joy is you have to remember God's hospitality towards you. What's incredible is there are two 
great meals that God is the host of for his people to teach us and remind us of what his hospitality towards you is like, to teach you of his acceptance and his provision and his love for you right where you are. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he hosted his disciples for a meal. And this meal would become the Lord's Supper or communion. And this would be a meal that the church would practice together until Jesus returned. And in this meal, the bread represents his body and the wine represents his blood. And they represent this covenant of love where God always accepts us where we are. And in Jesus as the host, he's taken care of everything. He's taken care of everything, every detail, everything needed, he purchased. He arranged. He coordinated. And it cost us nothing to come to his table. We simply are the benefactors. We simply consume. We simply eat. And we're reminded, oh yeah, God loves me right where I am. That it's this meal that we partake in, and every time we partake in it, it reminds us of what's always true, is that we were ungrateful guests. We were ungrateful guests. God provided everything, and we broke all that he gave to us, and we used it for ways that dishonored him. And God could have gone in the other room and grumbled about us, because we owed him an unpayable debt. But Jesus came and he brought us in. He paid the debt, and he rescued us from our old host of sin and fear and death. And every time we partake of that meal, we're reminded of how gracious and hospitable God is towards his people. We look back in that meal, but also we look forward. What is incredible to think about the end of all things being at hand is all of history is culminating at another meal. God loves to throw parties for his people. All of history is coming to culmination at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation says this, Revelation 19.6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunders, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a happy host God will be that day. His son and his people finally brought together with no more tears and no more pain and nothing to separate them any longer. On that day where you are finally convinced that your sin couldn't undo his grace and your suffering could not thwart his promise. So in light of all of this, in light of the end of the last meal that we will celebrate with Jesus,
host one another. Tell one another and tell this city with your mouth the gospel of grace. But show them this gospel of grace with your home. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, God, so often our fundamental struggle to obey your commands is we forget how kind and how welcoming and how gracious you are to us when we fail you. God, so often we're scared to let ourselves be hurt because secretly, God, we don't know if you'll accept us and love us and be near us when we're hurt. God, thank you for your hospitality. God, thank you that, Jesus, you came to us and you didn't love us from a distance. You didn't teach us just moral lessons for us to understand. You came and you ate with us. You came and you heard our stories. You knew our plight. It wasn't lost on you, the ways we had been hurt. It wasn't lost on you, the ways that we failed. And you came and you accepted us before we did one good act. Jesus, you purchased everything for us. You took care of every detail. You left nothing up to chance. You left, left nothing up to our doing. You just invited us in and said, all you need to be in my home, in my house, and at my table is to be hungry, is to be needy. And your bread, your body, and your blood, Jesus, reminds us that we're loved and reminds us that you're always happy to have us. And so God, would we believe that in a way that causes our homes to be open? That causes us to have people over for dinner who disagree with us on everything. And they're blown away by how warm and how kind we are. That we'd be a people, God, known for our hospitality. Not in order to be loved, but because God, we've already been loved. God, help us do it without grumbling, but with joy that we get to show the world what you're like, both in word and in deed. God, use us, use hospitality in this church to heal people, to break the chains of sin, to heal marriages and heal loneliness and heal all the infirmities that we have. God, use the hospitality of the men and women in this room. Take our couple of loaves of bread and couple of fish and God multiply it for the flourishing of the city. God, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.